Locked On Dolphins, hosted by Travis Wingfield. Your daily podcast on the Miami Dolphins. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. I'm in town to play the Dolphins, you dumbass. What is up, Dolphins fans, and welcome into the Monday, January the 6th edition of the Locked On Dolphins podcast. I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and as always, I am here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football. And on today's show, the long-awaited introduction into Chan Gailey's scheme and what to expect from the new coordinator. Plus, we'll take a look at our first positional capsule, starting with Ryan Fitzpatrick and the quarterbacks, looking back and looking ahead at the position. I'll quickly debate two of the top guards on the free agent market, and we'll recap the action from the weekend that was in playoff football around the National Football League. That and plenty more, but first, before any of it, I kindly invite each and every one of you to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, keep us in the top 200 on Apple Podcasts and the top 100 on Spotify. You can follow me on Twitter, now up over 15,000 followers. Thank you for that. Voted the number one follow on Dolphins Twitter, by Dolphins Twitter, and of course, the show at Locked on Fins. We will follow you back and check out LockedOnDolphins.com. We have plenty of written content for you guys up there every single day. That's another Miami Dolphins. I teased it all week long, and now we are here talking about Chan Gailey's offensive system and what you can expect in Miami. And before we get into my four core points I want to discuss, let's talk about some stats and some of the stuff he's done in the past. And the last time Chan Gailey coached an offense, it ranked near the bottom of the league, but it was that terrible 2016 Jets team that started Bryce Petty at quarterback for five games. With Petty, they averaged just 11 points per game. With Ryan Fitzpatrick, it was almost double that up at 20 points per game, and the year prior to that with a 2015 Jets team that a lot of folks picked to finish near the top five of the draft the following season. The Jets were 11th in scoring offense with 24.2 points per game. And I do believe one of the reasons they went after Chan Gailey and maybe said goodbye to Chad O'Shea. And we've heard other insiders out there speculate on the idea that maybe Chad O'Shea banged the drum for Josh Rosen a little bit too hard. And Jerry Shaplinski, the quarterback's coach who was in that room, was also known to work with Jacoby Brissett and Jimmy Garoppolo when he was in New England under Josh McDaniels, who handled Tom Brady. Maybe the Dolphins want the veteran OC to handle the starting quarterback like Ryan Fitzpatrick and have Jerry Shaplinski manage and develop the younger guys like he did in New England. And as far as player development goes, the head coach knows he has to be tied to that quarterback from the Move the Sticks podcast. Lance Zerline of NFL.com was talking about how the coach's job security is tied to whichever quarterback he selects in the first round. And if you don't develop that kid, nothing else you do matters because you will get fired. And if they didn't think that O'Shea was a valuable voice to do so, then that makes a lot more sense to move on. And Chan Gailey has been around every type of quarterback imaginable from developmental to veterans that are proven in the league to guys that he got to play better at later stages in their career. Pretty much every step of the way, though, he had to develop somebody. Cordell Stewart in the 90s, he got that offense cranking with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Hell, he got the eighth highest scoring offense in the NFL out of a Jay Fiedler-led offense in Miami. And of course, he made Fitzmagic a thing. And the guys that share the backfield with the quarterback, the running backs are going to be a focal point of the offense. And I think you get an idea of what Miami might look for in this year's running back class. It hasn't really changed all that much, in my opinion. I think you want guys that can contribute in the passing game. They can flex out wide and run routes as actual receivers in tight, condensed splits. And they're probably going to use two guys to share the workload because... 
That's what he did with the Jets with whether it was Matt Forte and Bilal Powell or Chris Ivory in that mix or going back to the Bills with Fred Jackson and CJ Spiller and even Marshawn Lynch back in 2010. And each one of those backs would either be part of an empty set where they flexed out wide and ran routes on cornerbacks or safeties or linebackers. They would carry the ball from multiple looks in the backfield and they would line up in nasty splits in tight to the formation and run slants or flares or little flat routes, things to get them in space to get the football. And it kind of reminds me a lot of what made David Johnson successful his first couple of years in Arizona. Now, granted, Johnson's last two seasons have been dreadful, but he is the type of player you might look for at that position. So those are some quick notes. Now I want to transition into the four core principles I looked at. And the first one, which is the longest of all four topics, are the similarities between what he ran with the Jets and Bills compared to what we saw last year with the Miami Dolphins. And there's a video thread up on my timeline where I showed an example of a lot of the same stuff Miami did this year. And it begs the question, at least in my mind, do the Dolphins feel like Gailey could just do the job that Chad O'Shea was doing already, but do it a lot better? The biggest praise I gave the Dolphins offense this past season was their first down aggressiveness, particularly to start off their drives, and that almost always originates from throwing the football out of run-favored packages like 12 personnel, that's one back, two tight ends, or 21 personnel, that's two backs, one tight end. That's why when you go look at Mike Gesicki or even some of the receivers' start numbers this year, they're low because Miami would open the game in unbalanced 12 personnel, sometimes a heavy package, which is just an extra offensive lineman into the game. And that 12 personnel package was usually Durham Smythe and Clive Walford, not Gasicki. So it further creates the illusion that we are going to run the ball to start the drive and then you throw it where they're not expecting it. And Chan Gailey is as aggressive as they come. And that was my favorite thing from my study I looked at over the weekend. Whether you're innovative or not, there's one thing that a coordinator can handle, and that's taking advantage of the analytics and going against the grain and doing what you shouldn't do in situations to take advantage of the defense not having the right personnel on the field. To me, it's easy to do, but not all guys do it. He does. I even saw Haas wide juke out there a few times, and that play is what the Patriots ran to beat the Rams on that final scoring drive in the Super Bowl. You're going to go empty. You got two backs out wide. They run little hitch routes or curl routes and come back to the quarterback. You have two seam routes that go vertical down the numbers, and then you have an inside slot receiver like Julian Edelman, who has a pivot route, a two-way go, and one-on-one coverage. Saw that plenty of times. I saw a lot of unbalanced 12 personnel, and all that is is where you put two tight ends into one side of the formation, and your two receivers off to the other. They run the football into the short side of the field, giving yourself an extra gap with the unblocked man in that situation being a cornerback, and the running back just has to beat that corner. The Dolphins did that relentlessly this season. They use that unbalanced 12 look to create imbalances in zone coverage when it comes to passing the football. When you do that, you're often going to get an unassuming quarterback off the edge covering a tight end. And when you go unbalanced 12 and run play action, that just means that cornerback is literally covering grass, doing nothing out there. The Dolphins did that a lot this year. Chan Gailey did it a lot with the Jets in 2015 and 2016, although I did not see as much of it with the Bills back in 2010 through 2012. Another one of the main similarities are the motion indicators. In training camp, every single day, all they did was shift and motion pre-snap. Every single play, it seemed like they were doing something like that. And with a quarterback like Ryan Fitzpatrick, that allows him to decipher what coverage they want to run, and it tends to tip post-snap rotation so he knows where they're going to move post-snap. Both the Jets and Bills under Gailey use this a ton. Their pass protection principles, I thought, were better. Not similar, but just better. I wanted to get this mentioned in there. I sat with Rashad Butler 
Taylor of 790 ESPN and 560 WQAM in South Florida and the former eight-year NFL veteran and former Miami Hurricane offensive tackle at the Miami Heat game when I was down in South Florida and he talked to me about some pass protection schemes and admittedly that's an area of the game I'm not as confident with in my own evaluation so it's good to hear from a pro but he talked about the idea of the tackles being responsible for B-gap pressure. They can't get to the edge working outside when they have to take a first step inside and this offense does not do that. In fact, what I love about this offense is that they'll motion in a tight end, a receiver. Sometimes it's a back if that back is already out wide in an empty formation and they'll slide protection away from the back and have that back go across the formation to get the unblocked edge. This takes care of two things. It keeps your best pass protectors on the defense's best pass rushers and it also looks like zone read which can catch the attention of the linebackers as well. All right, we're going to take our first break and come back and get to the other three principles of the Chan Gailey offense. We'll talk about some offensive line upgrades the Dolphins can make. We'll talk about the quarterback position and plenty more here next. But first, a word from Blinkist. Like the rest of us, I bet you're going into 2020 thinking about what you didn't get around to in 2019 and your goals for the new year. If you want to work towards being your best self in 2020, understand more about the world around you and make sure that your time is well spent then Blinkist is for you. Blinkist is for anyone who cares about learning but does not have a lot of time to do so. Blinkist takes the key insights from over 3,000 nonfiction bestsellers in over 27 categories and condenses them down into 15-minute blinks, which are text and audio explainers to help you understand more about the core ideas of the book. 12 million people are already using Blinkist to deepen their knowledge in over 27 categories of nonfiction, including self-improvement, personal growth, management, leadership, and mindfulness and happiness. I like Blinkist because it got me through my last semester of school. Everything is condensed, everything is streamlined, and that can help you get your next task done in a timely manner. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash locked on to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash locked on to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash locked on. There was an episode of The Audible, one of the Miami Dolphins' official podcast last week where they interviewed Eric Rowe and he spoke about how injuries this season forced him into a new role with the Dolphins and how he embraced it and eventually got himself that new contract extension. I would highly recommend going back and checking out that podcast. Great to hear from one of the Dolphins leaders and hopefully one of the safeties of this team for a long time to come. Let's go back now into the ideas of Chan Gailey's offense and go back to the innovation and situational awareness of Chan Gailey and he is known as the first coordinator to bring the true spread game to the the NFL with the Buffalo Bills back in the early 2010s and that's really kind of remarkable when you consider how adaptive he was in 2015 and 2016 with the New York Jets you have to remember he didn't work in 2013 and 2014 he was out of football and now he's coming off another three-year lag in between jobs and someone on Twitter mentioned this to me and I suspect it could be bang on that none of these past schemes are going to be indicators of what Miami might do but rather that Gailey is going to bring some 
something revolutionary to the Dolphins. Hell, nobody ran more gadgetry than Miami this year, and he mixes it up as well as any offensive coordinator I've ever studied. I saw him go shotgun pistol one play, then traditional balance 12 personnel the next play. I saw him use counter tray, outside zone, isolation, and gap man principles all on the same drive in the running game. I saw him run that Haas wide juke we talked about. One of my favorite plays, and you can't find this in the Twitter thread, was a screen pass disguised as a flat route. They short motioned the field side receiver into a bunch from the 38-yard line of the opposition, a third down and nine play, so just on the fringe of field goal range and they get themselves a three-on-three look. All you have then is two blockers to hit the two defenders to the flat route, and then you have the receiver who has to make a man miss, and they ran that from a condensed split, which gives Anunwa a better chance to get to the perimeter and then key his blocks and find out where he has to go and set those blocks up. He, of course, makes the man miss and gets the first down, but if he didn't do that, it would have been a four- or five-yard gain because of the scheme, and it makes it an easier field goal. I love seeing stuff like that. I also love play sequencing, and that's the next top here, a short one, but a sweet one in the play sequencing. I'll refer you back to the video thread on Twitter. It was a 2011 Bills game against the Raiders. They went outside zone to the left and then the backside end crashed hard on that play and closed it down. So to begin the second half later after seeing that play and adjusting in game, they dial up the exact same look only this time, Ryan Fitzpatrick keeps it on the bootleg and runs to a big vacated area for 13 yards. Those are the kind of plays that you could execute with you and I playing quarterback and running back. It's the coach winning with the play call. And there are plenty of those involved in this offense. I know it's Jimmy's and Joe's, but it's nice when the X's and O's take care of things on their own as well. And the last of the four pillars of the Changeli offense or of my study was the player comparisons for the Dolphins of now compared to those Jets and Bills teams of the past. I think that Quincy and Nunwa is the key one here and that Mike Gesicki and Albert Wilson could see some sharing of that role. Although I do think Mike Gesicki is going to never leave the field because of his skill set and what he can offer this offense. But Quincy and Nunwa often had checks to motion in and act as a get in the way type of blocker in the running back position at tight end. And I say this because Wilson will work from the backfield plenty of times. He could be the guy that does that a lot. I also think there's an easy comparison on the strong slash shifty slot receiver that is a noon walk compared to Albert Wilson. And Mike Gesicki just really opens up the versatility of this offense and how they're going to want to do things, whether it's running three verticals, from that 12 personnel set with a tight end taking down the seam buster or going from 11 personnel to 12 personnel running it all empty and giving yourself an extra receiver that way. Speaking of receivers, I think Parker and Williams are essentially interchangeable from the X and Z position and they can use their downfield prowess as well as their body positioning and strength to run any position in this offense. Now the Eric Decker role is kind of interesting. I tend to think that Hearns and Ford might be best there, but then where is Jakeem Grant? Again, I think they're going to be plenty in innovative to incorporate all the parts they have on this offense the way Ryan Fitzpatrick talked about Chan Gailey in his interview in 2015 with the Jets. So all things told, we'll see what happens. Of course, the script is not written yet, but I think you can expect plenty of ingenuity, plenty of innovation, plenty of modern day concepts tied into old school concepts. And most of all, you're going to see a very aggressive coordinator who takes advantage of the analytics and the numbers and the tendency breakers presented to him on his play calls. Okay, I'm kind of franken 
producing this podcast, doing it throughout the course of the weekend. We're going to talk more about the NFL playoffs on the other side, but right now, let's go ahead and change gears here and talk about the offensive line position and some ideas I floated across Twitter, both on Thursday night and Friday afternoon, and the reason for that on Thursday night was watching Tennessee versus Indiana, and I've talked about him before on the podcast and on Twitter, but the Tennessee left guard, number 73, Trey Smith, is a mountain of a man, 320 pounds. He can literally move mountains when he blocks. He was the number one high school prospect in 2017, but after a very strong freshman season, a unanimous freshman All-SEC player, they twice found blood clots in his lungs, and he was finally cleared to play again this past August, just before the season started, and the Tennessee Volunteers changed their practices to incorporate Smith because he was not allowed to play in physical contact periods of practice, and rather they wanted to go through more walkthrough periods to get him involved, and it kind of tells you how valuable he is that they would change their entire practice to suit a left guard. In fact, He only had two contact practices the entire season, and he still went out there this year and earned all SEC honors and all American honors as a left guard. He's a top 10 player in this draft class, but the medical will make things interesting for him. I'd be all over him. On the topic of the offensive line, the Patriots feature a left guard who could hit the open market. I have spoken to a Patriots insider who thinks they will not bring back Joe Tooney, and if he does so hit the market, expect Miami to pursue him aggressively. Now, the argument comes down to left guard Joe Tooney or Washington right guard Brandon Scherf, and to me, the snap count differences here are what makes the biggest difference. Joe Tooney has missed like three snaps in the last three seasons, played better than 99% all three of those years, where Brandon Scherf's highest snap taking total was 68%. He dipped below 50% in 2018, so he misses a lot of games and a lot of snaps, and I'm not going to give big money to a guy who's going to miss that much time. You just cannot have that. You cannot have 12, 13, 14 million dollars per year sitting on your bench. And if you sign Joe Tooney, again, going back to the previous podcast of last week, where we discussed players knowing the program, knowing the system, and making those corrections and those dot connectors to jump systems and free agency, Joe Tooney has all that, but he also gives you availability to play every single down for your offense. And this also from my Patriots insider on Joe Tooney, quote, just a perfect football player, good at everything, elite pass protection, never misses a snap. He's smart. He was built in a lab by Dante Scarnecchia, end quote. And the smart portion there, you probably caught that. Listen to this fact I learned from someone else on Twitter who shared this link with me. Tooney was advised to only answer 39 wonderlit questions when he took that test so as to not scare teams away who think he might be too smart to play in the league or maybe has other interests he could pursue if football didn't work out. Well, Joe Tooney took that advice and only answered 39 of the 50 wonderlit questions and he got all 39 of them right. How crazy is that? I, I cannot believe that he literally batted a thousand and still only got, what is that, a B minus for his grade. Just remarkable how smart and instinctive he is, and that really shows up on his tape when you watch him play. And my last offensive line note for this podcast was looking at the center options in free agency this year. And I know a lot of folks are in on the idea of Creed Humphrey or Tyler Bayadash or Nick Harris or whoever your favorite center is in the first round of the draft. Well, if Miami doesn't want to go that route, and let's say they do sign Joe Tooney, Ted Karras has played center all year long for the Patriots. 
And again, from my Patriots insider, he told me that Karras has been serviceable this year. He's the kind of guy you can plug into a line and you're not going to have issues. He's not going to blow you away and take you to another level, but he's not going to have breakdowns that's going to cost you games and plays because of his poor play. So I think that Ted Karras, again, coming from New England, where he's going to be set to be a backup there next year if he re-signs, could sign in Miami and be the starter from day one. But also, that gives you flexibility to allow Michael Dieter and Evan Baim to both develop as interior backups, whether it's at center or at the guard positions. I think preferably both those guys at the center spot for Miami. So Ted Karras gives you that and the familiarity of playing alongside left guard Joe Tooney. You get that built-in chemistry, that built-in cohesion, and I think that would go a long way. That might be my approach on the interior offensive line. Go Tooney, go Karras. Maybe you draft the right guard like Trey Smith. He can change positions. He was a tackle in high school, played guard in college. You just do that. You go Tooney, Karras, and Smith. And then that frees up your draft pick at the back end of the first round to take a left tackle, maybe like a Makai Becton, a Josh Jones, an Austin Jackson, whoever tickles your fancy. You take that guy. So let's say you go Makai Becton at left tackle, a rookie. You give him a solid, firm starter, left guard in Joe Tooney, another solid veteran in Ted Karras, and another rookie in the right guard position, Trey Smith. And then you have Jesse Davis as your right tackle, the veteran to help the rookie get brought along to speed. We have plenty more, including NFL playoffs to discuss on the other side of the podcast, how it affects Miami's draft position and the quarterback capsule, taking a look at Ryan Fitzpatrick, the free agent class and the rookies ahead. But first, I know it's all very exciting, but if being excited has been an issue for you, then you guys got to check out Blue Chew. BlueChew.com, that's blue like the color blue. Blue Chew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach, and since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill, so you can be ready whenever the opportunity arises. Now, this is not just for guys who can't perform anymore like Tom Brady. It's for any guy who wants extra function to enhance their performance in the bedroom, and unlike Brady, you don't have to have your wife order it for you. Blue Chew is prescribed online and ships straight to your door in a discreet package, so no in-person doctor's visit, no waiting in the pharmacy, and best of all, no more awkwardness. Right now, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free when using our special promo code LOCKEDON. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com. Promo code LOCKEDON to try it for free. BlueChew is the better, cheaper, faster choice, and we thank them for sponsoring the Locked On Dolphins podcast. You guys like being lied to? I think maybe you do if you're still listening to this podcast because I have lied to you once again. We are not going to do the quarterback capsule on this particular podcast. We will, however, look at every single position on this football team, where they were in 2019, where they're going to be in 2020, free agency and the draft, all of that and more on the next 10 days on the podcast starting tomorrow. I promise Tuesday we'll talk about quarterbacks. And the reason for bumping that is because I want to get a definitive answer on Tua Tungavailoa. And by the time you hear this podcast, podcast, maybe we will have a definitive answer on the Alabama quarterback and his intentions to either declare for the 2020 NFL draft or to return to Alabama. Now, I'm talking to you guys on Sunday afternoon. I'll put this podcast up in the evening, so perhaps we'll have some good timing on this podcast in regards to Tua not making his decision just yet, but there have been plenty of nuggets out there regarding Tua's decision to go pro, and of course, we know the press conference will be held Monday at noon Eastern, 9 o'clock Pacific, 
So luckily we do not have to wait very long in the day, but I think in general, we might not have to wait very long because the intentions to have this press conference with Nick Saban in the building typically is a good thing. I did some research going back over the last two draft classes for Alabama. I was going to go further back than that, but I found the answer I was looking for in doing that. There is an article up on NFL.com and 247sports.com. The 247sports.com article refers to last year's class when Nick Saban talked about his four exemplary top underclassmen declaring for the draft and how this has, quote, sort of become a tradition for us to let these guys kind of get their shining moment and to really thank them and congratulate them for all they did for the Alabama football program. And now it's time to graduate them onto the next part of their careers. And that's kind of paraphrasing. We'll end that quote there. But the idea is that Saban really only comes to these on-campus press conferences to wish the player well at the next level. You heard about Dylan Moses. You hear about Alex Leatherwood. Those guys just announce on social media and they're done with it. And that's just it. They go back to school. There's no Nick Saban. There's no big pep rally. They don't make it a big old grand parade to welcome the guys back to school, but rather to give them their moment to go on to the professional ranks. And they did it back in 2018 with Minka Fitzpatrick class as well. And I think that one's important because Minka was Nick Saban's favorite player he ever coached. Again, Saban's own words there. So we're going to find out on Monday, but I think it's pretty telling right here. I do believe Tua will go ahead and declare for the NFL draft. And will Miami take him with the fifth pick in the draft? Well, we have four months to debate that. It's going to be a good time, but it seems like maybe, just maybe, he is going to in fact go pro with the injured hip and all. And the Dolphins now have a decision to make with the fifth pick in the draft, I think. Okay, I want to close this podcast up by talking about the playoff games because the Saturday games were tremendous football games, just white knuckle entertainment wire to wire. Although I do believe both those teams, the Titans and the Texans, will get axed by the Ravens and Chiefs next week, but that doesn't mean it wasn't fun football. And it certainly doesn't mean there wasn't an opportunity to scout some players for the Dolphins next year in free agency. We'll start with that Buffalo and Houston game, and that one really kind of was the big downside of the weekend for the Dolphins. The Texans pick would have wound up in the top 24 picks had they lost that game. Now it'll be no better than 26, depending on some of the results that happened today. And we'll update that here in just one second. So the Texans draft pick falling further and further down the board. But the good news is both AFC East teams lost. What a wild game that was for the Buffalo Bills. And you have to be kind of worried about them going forward because their roster with that defense, with Devin Singletary, with that offensive line they've built, they've got some good skill guys and John Brown and Cole Beasley and Dawson Knox probably could stand to add to that group as well from this year's loaded receiver class. That's going to be the team I think the Dolphins have to contend with in the future in the AFC East. But then again, is Josh Allen the type of quarterback that makes you worry? I think he can make some plays with his legs. He obviously gives you an added dimension in the running game and he'll get the big off script plays from time to time. But the inconsistencies really make you wonder as a Buffalo fan. So that game insanely out of control, enjoyed every minute of it. But the one game I want to talk about the most is that Titans and and Patriots game. And the fact that there were so many players on that field who are set to hit free agency that are going to be targets for this Dolphins football team. We start with the defensive side of the ball. On the Patriots, you got Adam Butler, a defensive tackle. He's restricted free agent, but he could find a way to Miami if they want to go that route. Kyle Van Noy, the linebacker, I think he has a good chance to hit the open market. And if he does, I would expect a contract offer on his table the day free agency begins. 
On the other side of the ball for the Patriots, Joe Tooney is an absolute monster as a left guard. We've talked about him a lot. Hasn't missed barely any snaps over the last three seasons. An all-pro, an elite pass protector, high-character guy. Had that 39 score on the Wonderlick, despite only answering 39 of the 50 questions. I think Ted Karras, their center, makes a lot of sense to be a guy that can groom a rookie behind him in that position to start off with. Then you go to the Titans side of the football, and Logan Ryan, the cornerback, can do everything for you. Plays inside, plays outside, and you can sign him to a big contract and have him be your slot cornerback because when you do go base defense, you can just kick him outside, put him on the perimeter, and he can play fine out there. And then when you bring the third defensive back onto the field, the third cornerback onto the field, he goes back into the slot. He loves to come up and play the run. Physical, aggressive, tracks the football. He's a terrific player. I think the Dolphins will have eyes on him if he shakes free. But the one I want to talk about the most is the Titans running back, Derrick Henry. And I put together a thread on Twitter that was greeted with a lot of pushback from some Dolphins fans on there. And I just talk about how Miami, over the final nine games, averaged 25.4 points per game despite rushing for just 77.3 yards per game during that stretch. That's the eighth best scoring offense with the 32nd ranked running game for Miami. And the Dolphins did face four top 10 defenses in those nine games. They beat three of them and three top 10 passing defenses. And during that five and four finish, entirely one dimensional, the Dolphins averaged 22 first downs per game. League average is 20.3 first downs per game. Now with Henry, you worry about the workload. He had 305 carries this year, probably going to have even more next week, probably another 25 carries, but he came into the season with just 501 carries over three seasons combined. And if the Dolphins choose to purchase their running game this way, it's going to cost them a hefty contract. Probably not Zeke Elliott's $15 million per year, but there are four backs that make upwards of $12 million. That's probably where you start the contract with. But if you sign him, you just ride him until his legs fall off. He turned 26 during that game on Saturday. His birthday is January 4th. And so maybe there's another 800, 900, 1,000 carries in there. Zeke Elliott has 1,200 carries through his first four years, and he missed 11 games. Le'Veon Bell had 908 carries before that big 2017 season where he was all pro. Marshawn Lynch had four straight years of 280 carries or more between ages 25 and 28. He's pretty comparable to Derrick Henry. And if the Titans are crazy enough to let Henry leave, I don't think they will be, but maybe they could just be too tied up for cash. They have $57 million available in cap space this offseason, but they also have to pay Ryan Tannehill. They might have to pay Jack Conklin. They might have to pay Logan Ryan. Together, those three are going to give you at least a minimum of $40 million in contracts this year. And if the Dolphins do sign Henry to, let's say, a $12 million per year, four-year contract, they'd still have over $100 million in their arsenal to spend this year with the 14 draft picks and five of those picks in the top 60 or 64, depending on where the Saints wind up. Henry accounted for 75% of Tennessee's offense on Saturday. To me, that's worth the cost of doing business. And to talk about the Dolphins' offensive success without any semblance of a running game, and that's where this idea comes in, the Dolphins averaged 92 rushing yards per game since Fitzpatrick came back into the lineup for those 11 games, and they averaged 25 first downs per game in those games. So Miami's offense got it done, despite the fact that there was absolutely no running game to speak of. So I do believe you can structure your offense around a running back like Derrick Henry and just make him the focal point and feed him the ball relentlessly, especially in the Miami Heat. I know it's kind of a trope at this point, but it is true. You can wear teams down 
with that Dolphins home field advantage. And I will present this last stat that goes against the idea of signing Derrick Henry. And this comes from New Age Analytical on Twitter. And Ryan Tannehill's horrible game, he added plus 2.7 expected points on 21 plays. While carrying the Titans to victory, Derrick Henry added 2.6 expected points on 35 rush attempts. That was good for .07 EPA per play. Tannehill was at .13 EPA per play. So it tells you the running game has kind of been marginalized at this stage in the NFL. So you have some conflicting ideas there about analytics and what kind of impact Derrick Henry could have on your team. All I know is this, Derrick Henry runs the ball super hard. He's a damn hard guy to tackle. He has breakaway speed. He can contribute in the passing game. He is a mighty, mighty fine player. The argument comes, do you pay a running back that kind of money? I can understand the pushback on that, but Derrick Henry is an elite running back that would change things for the Dolphins. And just a couple of follow-up notes here on the Saints and Vikings game. To me, the pass interference call that was not made at the end of the game should have at least gone to review. It looked to me like Kyle Rudolph extended his arm and that caused the defensive back to lose all momentum and then Rudolph propelled backwards. So to me, that meant there was forcible contact that allowed him to create separation and make that game-winning touchdown. However, I will say I'm pumped for the Vikings because I've always been kind of a secondary Vikings fan. I feel like every year they pick the players that I like. Plus, one of my very best friends in the world is a huge Vikings fan. So I always root for those teams in Minnesota. The afternoon game, the Seahawks and Eagles, pretty much a stinker because Josh McCown enters the game after Carson Wentz misses his third consecutive playoff game for that Eagles team. We know about Nick Foles in the past, but just watching Josh McCown come in there and play pretty eh, football, they really protected him with the scheme. It kind of made me think about one quick topic here to end the podcast that even though I thought he played pretty terribly in that game, I still think that the idea of having a veteran experienced quarterback as your backup guy, a guy like maybe Ryan Fitzpatrick will be in the next two or three years, makes more sense than going after mid-round developmental guys who half the time can't even function on an NFL field in the way Will Greer can. So even though Josh McCown, not a great game, I still think the standard for a quarterback of that age, the guy that's proven that he can survive in the league for 18, 19, 20 years is a better way to go than to have your backup who you have to have come in in a pinch every now and then to win you a football game or just to keep the offense on schedule, it's better to have the older guy than some developmental prospect who you do not know how he'll respond when the pressure is on. And with the results of those games now all in the books, we have the confirmation of where Miami's current draft picks stand, except for that Houston pick, which could still move around. The Dolphins will pick fifth in the first round. We knew that. And 18th from Pittsburgh. We knew about that. The Houston pick right now is settled in at 27. That can bounce around from 26 to like 29, depending on who loses next week. And of course, it could inch even closer to the 30s with another Texans win next week on the road in Kansas City but we'll definitely have to see if they're capable of doing that. All right, on tomorrow's podcast, we'll cover the Tua Tungavailoa press conference and declaration and all the stuff that goes into that. A big, big day for the Miami Dolphins and the history of where their organization goes. Could they go after the quarterback? I gave you guys a little teaser on Twitter for a mock draft I put together just kind of off the top of the head for some positional needs and where I think Miami might have value at those spots as they become more and more cemented in the draft in their order. And that first pick, I did go with Tua Tungavailoa. I believe that if he lasts to number five, the Dolphins would stay there and pick him. And if they want to go up and ensure him, probably the number three pick in the draft with Detroit would make the most sense. And that'll cost the Dolphins the 39th pick in the draft if you're going off the draft value chart, which nobody really does anymore. So we will see what the cost of that potential move up would be. My second pick in the first round, number 18, I would take Minnesota safety Antoine Winfield. I think he plays all 100 snaps for you right away from his rookie year. He can play in the box safety off the edge C-gap run defender. He can blitz the quarterback. He can play single high free safety for you. Go back into two deep. He can play a third of the deep field. 
He can cover tight ends and backs, and he can come down and cover the slot. I believe between he and Eric Rowe, you have two very flexible safeties that can do a lot of covering when it comes to man coverage. The third pick in the first round was number 27 from Houston. I went Makai Becton, the massive athletic left tackle from Louisville. I think his upside's through the charts, and he could be a good left tackle for you, if not right tackle, if you have to move him eventually in the future. The 39th pick, assuming no trade is made, I went here to a guy that might go in the first round, the Boise State edge, Curtis Weaver. He's a very, very Christian Wilkins-like personality with similar versatility across the defensive line. The 56th pick, the second rounder from the New Orleans Saints. I went with Utah running back Zach Moss. I think he can be a bell cow for you. Catches the ball out of the backfield, scheme diverse in terms of gap and man schemes in the backfield for Miami's running back situation. And then with the 70th pick at the top of the third round, I went guard Trey Smith from Tennessee. No idea where he'll be on the draft board come draft day given the medical issues with the blood clots in his lungs. But he's a top 15 type talent just has that medical concern. So Tungavailoa, Winfield, Becton, Weaver, Moss, and then Smith to round out the two-day draft. I put up there the first mock draft I've done of 2020, and we went a little long on this podcast, so that is going to be a good time to get out of here. In the meantime, you all please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Check out the other Locked On Sports family of podcasts for all the local and national coverage of your favorite teams. Follow me on Twitter at WingfieldNFL. Follow the show at Locked On Fins and keep up to date on the Daily Dolphins blog over at LockedOnDolphins.com. You guys have a great rest of your night. We'll talk to you again tomorrow for another edition of the Locked On Dolphins podcast, your daily dose for Miami Dolphins football.